Let me tell you, my friends, this has been quite the week, has it not? This is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice in it. Not simply because of what happened with the Roe versus Wade decision on Friday, but maybe especially because of that. I want to speak with you just for a brief moment about that. Friends, for the last almost 50 years, we've made the same mistake as a nation that the Canaanites made so many years ago. Before the time of Christ, there was a group of people. They worshipped an idol called Molech. Molech was worshipped by infanticide. You would bring your infant and murder them right there in front of the God. This, friends, is no God at all. For our God, the one who reigns supremely and stands sovereignly over all things, is a God of life, not death. And he is a God who came to give us life. And beloved friends, every life is precious, whether they're unborn or walking around on two feet. Even if they disagree, even maybe especially if they disagree. Today, friends, we are at a new day, a new moment in our nation's history and one that I have looked eagerly forward to for a long time. I was making some hospital calls on Friday morning when the news broke about the decision. I excused myself into the hall because I couldn't help but bring some tears of joy for the stain had been lifted from us. You may disagree with me and even our church's position on this, but I encourage you today to join me in praying for our nation. I feel a little, perhaps, like Abraham Lincoln did when he was inaugurated for the second time in 1865. The second inaugural address is one that is at the end or near the end of the Civil War. It's clear the Union has won all that's left is finishing up. Today, friends, like then, we look back and see what's been lost. I want you to pray with me today for our nation. I want you to pray with me for those who are grieved by this decision. I want you to pray with me for the future of our nation and what happens now. Quite frankly, I never believed we would get, this, get to this point. I really didn't. My faith wasn't big enough, you might say because I didn't think the Supreme Court would ever have the courage to go through with it. To that end, let's pray for them too. For this day is the first of many where we learn a new path. But it is one that is now striven with life, not death. And it is one where we've chosen life. Friends, this day is one that we need to pray, so I invite you to do that with me now. Gracious Jesus, you have created us as your servants and as your people. And you've also created us as Americans to live with freedom in this great land. Today, Lord Jesus, we bring our nation back to you. We bring our nation to you because we're at a crossroads in every conceivable way. My prayer today, Jesus, is for healing for all of us, 
that you would bring your healing to each of our hearts and minds, and that today, Jesus, because of your goodness, because of your love for life, we would join you in celebrating. My prayer today, Jesus, is also for those who are wounded and grieved by this decision. I pray, Father, for peace for them too. I pray against violence, and I pray, God, that you would deliver them from what I believe is a wrong idea. You are a God of life, and you love all of it, even if it wasn't planned. So guide us into this new reality, Lord Jesus. Lead us with strength and wisdom, and let us be moved to trust you in a whole new way with our nation. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right then, my friends, you came to hear about Revelation 11, and that's what I intend to talk with you about. Revelation 11, the last portion of it, the 11 to 19 that we've read today, or I'm sorry, 14 to 19, what we've read today. My friend Mark did a great job with it. It is an interlude. We've had the two woes, the second one we covered last week, and we have now the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet proclaims something, something powerful, something bold, something that is different than we might have expected. Whereas some of the other earlier trumpets, they were words of warning. Remember that the, the twofold purpose of Revelation, a word of warning to those who are outside of Christ and a word of encouragement to those who are inside of Christ. This one is a word of warning. The, the first six, I beg your pardon, were a word of warning. This one is a word of encouragement. And what is that word of encouragement? Things will not always be as they are, dear Christian. They will not always be as they are. They will not be always apocalyptic. There will not always be moments of problems and trials, and, and there will not always be this overbearing spiritual power that pervades bringing darkness to the land. There's a new day coming. Pause right here and just say, if you want to see what it looks like, read Revelation 21. What a beautiful picture of what lies ahead. The other side of the coin, a word of warning. Things will not always be as they are. The victory that you currently feel, the victory that you, as outside of Christ, think you've won that would cause you to exchange gifts and celebrate it so freely will not be in place forever. Plan accordingly. Recognize that these are the winners, even if it doesn't look this way. And friends, this is the good news that the angel comes to bring with his trumpet. See it there in verse 15, an announcement of victory. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. And the way this Greek idiom goes at the end of it, you can just keep adding evers until you're tired of saying ever. This proclamation is, comes at the hands of great voices, and they proclaim Christ's victory in heaven. But you might also include that his victory is not limited to heaven. Did you see it there in verse 15? The kingdom of earth is also now the kingdom of heaven. 
The two kingdoms have been merged. They have been brought together. What, Darren, that's just crazy. How is that even possible? With all the rulers, there are 197 nations, with all the rulers around the world, how are we ever going to bring it all under one banner? Friends, this is good news. And it beckons us to take a historical look, a look back, and let's acknowledge something that we already know is true. All the kingdoms of this world, no matter how big or no matter how small, no matter how grand and glorious or how, many, how weak and, and futile, they are all like sandcastles. Sandcastles. When we go to the beach, we build them, don't we? We erect them knowing that they won't stand the test of time, nor do we really intend for them to. After all, for most of us, we build it right near the edge of the water. That's where the sand is easiest to use to build. And then when the tide comes in, it washes that sandcastle out. Can I tell you, my friends, this is a visual, an analogy, if you will, for the kingdoms of this world. They will not stand forever, nor should we expect them to. Think back with me just for one empire specifically, the Roman Empire. For half a millennia, 500 years, there was no one who could even begin to stand up to the Roman Empire in terms of might, in terms of financial prowess, in terms of authority, in terms of length of reach. They had all of it. And now, it's been more than 1,500 years since their season in the sun ended. Friends, this announcement that the angel comes to bring is one that we must recognize is true today too. Just like sandcastles, all of those other kingdoms will fade away under the fullness of one, the fullness of Christ's reign. There will no longer be this realm, the realm of earth, nor will there be simply the realm of heaven. No, all of it, all of it, all of it will be under the full reign of Christ. The fullness of Christ's reign will become evident and apparent. How will it become so? Well, I want you to see it here. Because of the will of God and because Christ has declared it so. The fullness of Christ's reign declares that his authority is complete. Now, pause right here and jump ahead to Revelation 19, verse 11. Therein you'll see the white rider, white horse rider coming in and sweeping things over. We recognize him as Christ and he's coming to bring all of the others to an end. Here is a sneak preview of it in chapter 11. It's like we see it coming. And let me just add one other thing here. It is not as if Christ's authority is waiting until then. No, 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 no. Christ is just as much in charge now as he will be then. I want you to hold on to this, and if you want something to take home with you, something you can use, then here's what I want you to grab on to. Jesus Christ's authority is today. Whether somebody acknowledges it or agrees with it or not, it does not change the fact that Christ is still in charge. 
I hope that's good news to you. For if it is good news, then it means that you have acknowledged who Christ really is, the sovereign Lord and master of all that is. He always has been a charge, and he always will be. Friends, this is the good word that the elders come to acclaim. You see it in the second section there, beginning in verse 16. The 24 elders offer an acclamation. It is a threefold acclamation. It is an acclamation that declares three things powerfully, significantly. Here's what the Bible says. 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, God, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is now the third time that we've seen these elders. Revelation 4, Revelation 5. And this is, in this moment, they fall down again, prostrating themselves in worship to the living God. May we do likewise. We would be wise to do so. For when we recognize who he really is, then it's easy to worship him. So why doesn't that happen more often? Quite frankly, because we're so busy making God in our own image instead of letting him have his own. Don't make that mistake. Now the victory in Christ is obvious. The elders fall down before the throne of God. They come to worship, and they come with a threefold proclamation. Let's take each one of them in turn. One, Christ's reign is supreme. Revelation eleven seventeen. You have taken your great power and begun to reign. When? Who was and who is. So from eternity past, you were in charge. You are right now, and this new beginning, this new chapter of the reign says that you always will be in charge. This is good news, but it's good news only for those who receive this as a word of encouragement. For those on the word of warning side, it's terrifying. When they hear these words, they're like, oh no, wait a minute. Because if Christ is reigning supreme, their kingdom isn't. Herein is the message of hope. Christ's authority is over all kingdoms. No one is equal to him. While his reign will not become in its fullest fruition until Revelation 19 and following, herein is the first fruits. You know, one of the things that I love about the summer is seeing watermelon, cantaloupe, and peach stands pop up. I love seeing those guys go up. You know why? Because it is the first fruits of the summer, isn't it? When we see those, we know summer's right around the corner. Now, you might say, but Darren, I can get a watermelon or a cantaloupe or a peach at the store anytime. I know, but those are grown somewhere else. The ones that are being sold on the side of the road, generally, those are local. It means summer has come, and it's brought to life its fruit. Herein 
is the fruit of the kingdom of heaven come to be expressed in its fullest form. This, friends, this, friends, means that Christ's reign has finally come into full view and we see it for what it is. There's a second thing that they, they, they proclaim. It's in verse 18. God's judgment is righteous. I want you to notice, not only does Christ reign, but he does so with righteousness. That's very different than the reign that is around others. The righteous, they're the ones who know what's true. The unrighteous base it on whim or popularity or even emotion. Now is the time of God's judgment, and it is righteous. Herein lies God's righteousness, both his punitive justice and his rewarding justice. Ahead in chapter 20, we see the judgment of the dead and the final rewards for the righteous in Revelation 21, the destruction of those who were in rebellion toward God's authority in Revelation 19. Herein is one of the things that causes people, when I talk to them about trusting Christ as their Savior, they draw back. The question that I usually get is, who is God to judge? What right does he have to judge me? To that, let me take you to a baseball analogy. You may not like the umpire behind the plate. You may have wished for a wiser or a more handsome or perhaps a more to your tastes umpire. But the very fact that you step out to play baseball with him behind the plate means that you're assigning yourself under his authority, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with every decision he makes or not, his decisions are final. Go with me on this, okay? You and I, by virtue of our birth, stepped on to God's playing field. He crafted us and created us, and now he umpires over us. Whether we agree with his decisions or not is really irrelevant because they're his. And the same God who crafted me and created me and shaped me in his image is the same God who invites me to a renewal. I can choose to be renewed or I can choose to reject it. Friends, today, God is inviting you yet again to renewal because his judgments are righteous. Not everyone will agree, and that brings us to the third thing, the third proclamation. God's reward will be granted to the righteous. I want you to see how verse 18 begins. The nations raged. Don't soft soap that word. It's an angry term. It has with it the idea of stomping your feet and jumping up and down, being angry about something. The nations rage. Why? Because they are not in charge anymore. Their sovereignty, their rule has been brought to an end. They wanted to have things their way, and did for a manner of time. But now, now 
through the work and the power of God, he's brought things under his authority. He's made things right. It's not a surprise. We've had this book 2,000 years now. He's warned us all along, this is coming. It's like rolling past stop sign after stop sign and rolling past bridges, the signs that say bridge out ahead. And then when you finally run off the end of the bridge that was, you were told was out, you're mad at the sign maker. Oh, friends, don't make that mistake. For our God in his wisdom has told us in advance the righteous will be rewarded. The justice of God will fall on the disobedient. If we know that in advance, let's prepare accordingly. Verse 19 brings things to a proper culmination. Let me read it for you again. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple with flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. It's almost as if our friend, the Apostle John, the author of this book, takes a moment and looks back into time to see what has happened here. For it doesn't appear this has happened yet, but it's a retrospective on when the kingdom is fully realized. For after all, the ark and the temple where it resides are integral to representing the reality of God and man together. This retrospective on when the kingdom is fully realized is a hint, a hint to Revelation 19 to 22. When the ark is in the temple, things have been made right once and for all. Now we don't know exactly what ark was in Herod's temple. It almost certainly wasn't the ark that was in Solomon's temple. That one was almost assuredly destroyed. And we don't know where the one that was in Herod's temple went if it was there. Now, if you ask my Ethiopian brothers, they will tell you that they took the, the ark when the Romans overthrew Jerusalem in 70 AD and they carried it to Ethiopia. They placed it in a church in the northern part of their, of their country. And if you go to Ethiopia, or if you ask our friend Gitana, he's a member of our church, or Fikru, he's also a member of our church, you ask them, is the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia? Oh yes, absolutely, there's no question about it. But you ask the follow-up question, can we go see it? Oh no, no, no. Here's the good news. In this moment, we don't have to ask permission to see the Ark. God will make it clear. It's the physical symbol of the relationship, spiritual relationship, between God and his people. In the wilderness, it was a marker of his loyal love for them. It was a marker of his protection over them and a signal when they had reached their home. For us in the New Testament, it's a reminder that God has always wanted to be with his people. Now we might say the ark lives within us, for we are God's temple. After all, what God most wanted was us. Not what we could give, 
not what we could do. He just wanted us. Sad reality is there will be some, <coughs> there will be some who will reject it. For them, the last section of verse 19 is reserved. I call it God's fireworks show. It seemed appropriate when I was writing it, thinking about July 4th, just around the corner. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. <coughs> These are portents of a storm, a storm that reveals God's justice one that will fall on the rebellious people of the earth. You see them back in Earth 18 described as the ones who destroy. While God's people are near the ark in God's presence, shielded by his power, sovereignty, wisdom, mercy, and grace, these that are on this side are at risk. Now, friends, I want to ask you, which side of this fulcrum do you stand on? Are you on the side that recognizes this thunder, this earthquake, these rumblings, these hailstones? They're reserved for you because you're disobedient to the Lord. Or are you on this side, <coughs> planning now, for how you will celebrate at the ark. For the word of God is good. It's faithful, trustworthy, and true. I want to ask you, friends, which one of these is where you are? Today, you have a chance to settle that question if you never have, or to resettle it if you have before. Like the two young ladies that we baptized at the beginning of this service, you can move from this kingdom to that one. Well, I, I don't really want that, Darren, so how do I do it? Well, here, here's how you do it. The same thing that I asked the girls while they were in the water. Do you believe Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? That means that you have to admit you need a Savior. This much I know about lifeguarding. If you're a lifeguard, a part of your training is to Wait until the person you're trying to rescue is through fighting. For if you try to rescue someone who hasn't yet surrendered to you, they will continue to fight and maybe drown you too. They must admit they need saving. That's where it begins. Have you admitted Christ is your Savior? Secondly, <clears throat> have you recognized your own sin, the fact that that is a stain upon you, and one that God wants, God longs to cleanse you from. That's why he came in the first place. Third, have you recognized that Christ's resurrection was for you, not him? He didn't come out of the grave to show off, to prove that he could. He came out to demonstrate his authority over life and death. Finally, Christ's return, the fourth question I asked the girls. 
If you know Jesus is coming back, you'll live accordingly. So let me ask you again, friends, which camp are you in? If you realize you're in this one and you want to transition to that one, here's what I want you to do. As soon as I start praying, I want you to get up and go right out this door into the Welcome Center, over here to your left and my right. <clears throat> go out there and find some of my staff. Some of them are out there right now. Tell them, I want to move from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. I want to invite Christ into my life. Today is your day. If you're not in the building and you'd like to do that, pick up your phone and text the name Jesus to 3150092. Friends, this day, this one, is the day God has given you to encounter him. Maybe you saw the girls baptized and you realized the first step of Christian obedience is for you too. It's a good day to get that conversation started. Come talk to us about that. Maybe you need somebody to pray with you. Come talk to me about that. Perhaps you'd like to join our church. Come talk to me about that. This day is the one God has given you to do business with him. Will you pray with me? King Jesus, we thank you today that you are in charge, large and in charge. All authority rests with you. All strength is in your hands. So today, Jesus, we come to you. Maybe some of us for the very first time. <clears throat> and we come with the clarity that we need you. I know, Lord, there are a great many who need you and there are still yet others who need you and don't want you, but I pray, Father, you would bring all of that to an end today and that your Holy Spirit power would pull back the curtains, would break down the walls, would clear over the barriers that we've constructed in order that you might be the Lord of our lives too. I pray, Lord, for those that are struggling right now with that decision. I believe, they're, I believe they're out there, Lord. That today would be the day they say yes to you. Because we're not promised another one past this. I pray, Lord Jesus, for healing for our hearts and our minds. And that, Jesus, because of you, we would say yes. Not because we fear punishment, but because we recognize what a great debt was paid for us. So Jesus, as best we know how, we're listening for you. <clears throat> we love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.